Okay, all right. Well, why don't I um, give an introduction now that we're done chattering and we'll get right into it. I mean, this is, first of all, um, everybody, we are so fortunate because um, Greg hasn't spoken publicly, uh, you know, particularly, you know, open <laughs> to everybody in the public and Greg probably well over a decade now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, so I, this, that's conservative. Yes. Yeah, so this is, this is the first time. So this is going to be like a, a real amazing experience for everyone. Um, and I can say that with confidence because as, as Margaret said earlier, it was the best talk we've ever had at Andrews and Horowitz. Um, so just a quick background. So, um, you know, it's funny because I first met Greg uh, because, you know, when I was a young CEO, Mark was very focused on me learning how to be a more competent CEO. And so, you know, he was very good at kind of finding that the kind of people had the best reputation at running organizations in the world and, and, and kind of helping me get introduced to them. And I, it was under that kind of guys that I met Greg, who, who really had the reputation at the time of being the best kind of upcoming, you know, young CEOs in all of technology. Uh, and at the time he was running a company called Brocade, which he had grown from about 40 people to a $24 billion market cap. And this is in the early 2000s when 24 billion really meant something, <laughs> you know, when that was a lot of money. Um, and, uh, you know, he, you know, in doing that, they you know, not only built a great company, but also uh, invented a category uh, known as storage area networking, which, of course, is a predecessor to kind of cloud storage. Um, so all of you who use S3 and the like and so forth can kind of thank Greg for pioneering that field um, and really building the premier company in the space. Um, <clears throat> but in uh, 2005, uh, Greg was, and I, I think the right word is kind of manipulated into resigning from Brocade, and we'll kind of get into how that happened, because it was a pretty unusual circumstance. Um, it's the only one like it I've ever heard of. Uh, and then uh, in 2006, uh, Greg was indicted for securities fraud related to backdating of stock options. Um, he was convicted in 2007 and sentenced to 21 months in prison in order to pay a $15 million fine. But in 2009, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals overturned the conviction um, because of prosecutorial uh, misconduct. And the misconduct was very interesting in that the prosecutors intimidated witnesses uh, into lying on the stand uh, in exchange for kind of better treatment for them. Uh, and those witnesses uh, later admitted that they had lied. And so it was overturned, but they tried Greg a second time despite kind of that misconduct. And he was convicted uh, and sentenced to 18 months in prison, um, which he served. Uh, and then on January 20th this year, um, he was granted a full pardon by President Trump um, which uh, we're all very grateful for. And so with that as a backdrop, let's get into the story. And um, I think, Greg, it would probably be great to start with <clears throat> Brocade and sort of how you built it. Because one of the things, I mean, not only was it a great company, 
But one of the things that always struck me about the whole um, criminal process was, you know, I watch a lot of crime shows and they always look for the motive. But not only did you not have a motive, you had kind of an anti-motive in that you didn't make any money off it and you had a tremendous amount to lose. So maybe you can talk about like who you were, how you built brocade, and then we'll get into kind of what happened. Sure. Um, you know, interestingly enough, for me, brocade was the pinnacle of my career. Just getting that job was the pinnacle of my career uh, up to that point, because I started out at uh, an OEM system company called Convergent Technologies and worked my way up through the sales ranks. And I, I knew from a very early age that I wanted to be a technology CEO. And I looked at Convergent and I, I saw that the, the PC was going to win that battle and that uh, proprietary workstations didn't have a future. And then I thought about what was the next big thing. And I found a company that was a, uh, a leader in PC networking called Banyan Systems. And I traveled to the East Coast and I became a networking expert and, and ran their sales organization. And, and I knew I needed to you know, check the box in terms of managing a big P&L. So I moved to Cedar Rapids, Iowa and uh, ran a division of a company called Norand in the wireless data collection space. And all of that groomed me for the point where uh, I was ready to come back to Silicon Valley and I felt like I was ready to run a company. And, you know, I, I wanted to be very thoughtful about it. And, uh, you know, at the time it was uh, right before the dot-com bubble burst and there were a lot of companies that were getting started and there were a lot of companies in various categories. And, you know, I, I really was deliberate about how I went about trying to find this opportunity. And I came across Brocade and it just had all of the perfect hallmarks. It was bringing a networking model to storage. It was an OEM business. Uh, it was something that I understood both technically and in terms of how to sell to large enterprise accounts. And the only trouble was getting the job. Uh, <laughs> And it took me 27 interviews yeah. uh, to finally get that job. <laughs> 27 interviews. That, that 27 interviews. But the, the funny part is that uh, their CEO criteria was a guy who had uh, come up through the system business. He had started or he or she had started in a startup, grew it into a multi-billion dollar company. They had networking background, uh, enterprise software experience. And I, I said to the chairman at the time, I said, this guy doesn't exist. You know, what you need is a leader. You need somebody who knows how to build teams, uh, how to win business. Uh, so I got the job and, and just serendipitously, you know, as often happens with industries that are in transition, uh, you know, the storage business was, you know, relatively arcane. There was a one-to-one -one relationship between servers and storage. And uh, I was a, a true believer in this notion of, uh, bringing a networking model to it to create these big data center platforms where you had, uh, you know, n number of servers that could connect to, you know, huge storage repositories. And we ended up gaining 90 plus percent market share and we were quite successful. Um, and, uh, you know, really at the end of the day, it, it's very simple. Uh, the success is probably analogous to lots of successful companies out there. You've got a winning vision, you've got a winning team, you've got a winning strategy, and you, you execute aggressively and, you know, hold yourself and the team accountable. And, and that's really what I attribute Brocade's success to. 
You know, and it was amazing because that success and, you know, the, the success and the growth that you were having kind of led to some like adjustments in your processes um, that, you know, kind of ended up being really problematic down the line. And so maybe talk a little bit about like what that was like, how fast you were growing and then, <clears throat> you know, how that got you know, Larry Sansini to go, well, maybe you should be a committee of one and, and that whole thing that kind of walked you into that, that trap. Sure. I mean, I, I think that in many ways, my story is a cautionary tale for many young CEOs. I think at the time I was 35 years old, yeah. I'd, I'd run a $60 million division of a private company. Uh, and I was, I was smart enough to at least know what I, I knew and what I didn't know. Uh, and I tried to augment my skill set by bringing in expertise from the outside into the company. I, I knew that we were going to scale this thing into a big company. And I, I brought a fellow named Mike Bird uh, in as mm -hmm. the company's CFO. He was, you know, well pedigreed, uh, came from one of the big six uh, at the time. Uh, I brought in, you know, manufacturing expertise. Uh, you know, my focus was really sales and marketing, uh, and the core team was was a technology team. But in any event, the the whole issue of stock options, uh, you know, up until the point that it became an issue, <clears throat> you know, five years after being a public company, really didn't occur to me. Uh, you know, Mike brought the process with him from uh, from Maxim. Um, you know, we'd group mm -hmm. employees. Uh, into a bucket, you know, if we hired, let's say it was a month of January and we hired 200 people, uh, Mike would say, you know, what's the low uh, stock price uh, in that month? And we'd grant it to everybody to, to just try to be fair. Uh, and I said to him, hey, yeah. can we do, th do this? And he said, yeah, of course, we, we did it that way. It's not an issue. We, we did it that way at my prior company. And, and your lawyers had reviewed the plan and your accountants had reviewed the plan. Well, actually, where, where it got a little mm -hmm. uh, treacherous in retrospect is we were hiring so many employees that it required a meeting of the board to, to grant these stock options. And, mm -hmm. you know, trying to get my board together was like herding cats at the time. And uh, I had brought on this fellow named Larry Sonsini, who was the uh, his name was on the building at Wilson Sonsini, Goodrich and Rosati, because it was recommended to me, hey, you should really try to get this guy on your board. He can, you know, help you with governance and he can help you with MA and he can help you set up infrastructure. So at one of the board meetings, I said, hey, we've got this problem, guys. You know, we're hiring, you know, 250 people a month and we need to grant stock options. And the, the price was going up. And Larry said, well, why don't we just make you a committee of one, Greg? I said, <laughs> can we do that? Oh, yeah, it's not an issue at all. It so, doesn't even sound like English, you know, committee one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you've got the most uh, prestigious pedigreed Silicon Valley attorney recommending to the board that Greg Reyes should be a committee of one for the purposes of expediting the administrative of stock option granting. Uh, yeah. and, and in many ways, that's the catastrophic mistake that came back and bit me in the rear end. Yeah, amazing. And so so you were kind of going about it, signing off on these uh, grants um, that your team was kind of what happened? 
What happened in the granting process or, or what happened or, when the wheels came we, off the cart? Yeah, what happened when the wheels came off the cart? Well, <clears throat> I, I was, it was the fall of 2004 and uh, the, the company was really positioned to, to do some big things in uh, 2005. And at, at about that time, I'd been approached by John Chambers, who was uh, the CEO of Cisco at the time, who had floated the idea of combining the two companies because Cisco tried to enter the storage area networking space. We've done an excellent job of uh, maintaining market share and competing with them. And, uh, you know, I was excited. I was excited about what was happening at Brocade. I was excited about the prospects of being uh, part of Cisco. And uh, I get a call at our sales meeting in November. And I remember it vividly because we had uh, Joe Montana and Harris Barton and Ronnie Lodd, who are friends of mine, uh, speaking at the kickoff meeting. And uh, I get a call from Sansini saying, hey, there, there's a, an issue uh, having to do with uh, stock options and the way that they were granted. And, you know, the audit committee would like you to meet with uh, their outside counsel. And I said, like, should I like go, Larry, by myself? Like, what's this all about? And he said, well, you know, there's an issue. Uh, a disgruntled employee had said that that his stock options uh, had been backdated. And uh, the audit committee, you know, with Sarbanes-Oxley wants to make sure that you know, this is a, a well-run uh, investigation. Nothing's going to come of it. You don't need uh, an attorney. Uh, so I went and met with them. It was like at the end of the, the sales meeting at eight o'clock on a Thursday night. Um, right. And I meet with these two guys from Morrison and Forrester without a lawyer, uh, based on the advice of Santini. And the things that I said during that conversation were basically used to criminally prosecute me. And I'll, I'll footnote it by saying the things that I said were used to criminally prosecute me, even though the notes weren't written up until a week before my criminal trial, if you can believe that. Wow. Wow. So that's, that's another good lesson, which is, um, you know, if you're going to meet with outside auditors on something like that, you do need a, an attorney. Clearly. Oh, wow. Amazing. hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, also don't have your corporate attorney sit on your board. I mean, there are so many lessons in retrospect that, you know, now you kind of say like, well, that was stupid, Greg. But it, at the time it was like, wow, you got Larry Sonsini on your board. And when he's advising you, you know, you, you think that you've got a, a real uh, luminary there. You know, you're sitting at the at the knee of the Silicon Valley legal god. Yeah, it's almost like a gold sticker of governance. It's, you know, okay, here, here's the guy who's the authority on it, and he's on the board. Obviously, we're in good shape. Yeah, I mean, little did I know, yeah. uh, in retrospect, he was setting me up. Yes, yes, and, 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 and we need to get into that, because that is one of the wildest parts of this whole wild tale. But, so continue. So you, you, you had the meeting with the outside auditors. They didn't write up the notes for <laughs> however long um but uh you know then then what happened after that <clears throat> well then we're we're proceeding with the cisco due diligence now imagine this your your number one competitor is doing due diligence you're yeah. you're kind of opening the kimono if you will um there's this audit committee led investigation 
and um, that the entire management team is recused from, I'm recused from, other members of the board are recused from it. Um, and uh, th this kind of drags on, and I can't remember if it was in, I think it was late December, 2004, I get called into this board meeting that was happening at uh, Wilson Sonsini's office. And um, uh, Sonsini and another board member asked to meet with me privately. And they said, for the good of the company, Greg, you need to resign. And I said, well, what did I do? And they said, well, you know, it's really inconclusive. Um, you know, there were no findings, but, you know, we, we really think that for the good of the company that you need to resign. And, you know, I was a company guy. I love the company <clears throat> that I built um, and I resigned. Uh, and there, and there were a couple of nuances to that that I think are important. One, one was in the Cisco acquisition deal, they wanted you to run their enterprise division, correct? That's correct. I I was the yeah. key guy. Uh, so fact, so without you, that deal was definitely in jeopardy. Uh, without me, I believe that that deal was going to be scuttled, which it was. But but I didn't understand the wheels within wheels at the time that, that really that were operating. And then the, the other thing that I recall was they claimed uh, the, this board member and Larry Sensini that KPMG would not certify your financials if you were the CEO. Is, is that right? But that's correct. That, that's yeah. what they told me. Yes. Um, <clears throat> and that, in fact, uh, really gave me no choice because if we couldn't have audited financials, um, you know, it was bad for the company, bad for the shareholders. As it turns right. out, that was a lie, uh, and it was a lie proffered by Sonsini um, to trick. And how did you find it? How did you find out it was a lie? Uh, I I found out through discovery after the fact. Yeah, and and legal discovery is part of the the criminal trial. Yes, correct. Correct. Yeah, that's amazing. So that that whole well, thing was just fabricated. It was it was fabricated to get me to resign. Now, of course, the optics of it are: wow, this guy must be a really bad guy. He, you know, he resigned. You know, why else would he resign? He loved the company. He was the company in many ways. Yeah. He was at least the the face of the company. Yeah. So you so it looked bad. It fouled the M and A transaction, which probably would have ended the whole thing because. Brocade would have gone away as a standalone company, and it was all based on this weird false premise. So why, why you? Why do you think, you know, you were the guy who got set up for the fall? Well, <clears throat> for a number of years, I, I thought I was hit by an unlucky lightning bolt. And as time has passed and as, as pieces of data have floated to the surface, um, I believe that the reason that uh, I was singled out for this prosecution, or at least set up for this prosecution, uh, was because at the time, I didn't know that Larry Sonsini was on the advisory board of the SEC. And if, if you recall, uh, Ben and Mark, back in that time period, uh, th there were articles that were starting to 
yet about the quote unquote lucky CEOs and how is it possible that these CEOs were able to grant stock options uh, to themselves and or receive stock option grants at the low of the year. Mm-hmm. And what I believe yeah. happened was that Sonsini knew this was a hot button issue for the regulators. <clears throat> I think that he saw an opportunity to kind of carve me out. I think he also knew that Wilson Sonsini represented uh, the majority of the the A-grade firms in Silicon Valley. Um, and, you know, they knew that this was a common practice. Uh, and I have subsequently come to learn from uh, multiple sources that he may have, in fact, cut a deal uh, with the feds to serve me up. And what was odd about this is that, you know, the company I built w- wouldn't help me defend myself. Everything was marked attorney-client privilege. Uh, inter- there was an a internal investigation, and it concluded that I had uh, done nothing wrong and that there was no finding of wrongdoing. So, you know, all I can believe is that, uh, you know, the guy that can see around corners or can see around the curvature of the earth and knows what's coming uh, yeah. really did a masterful job of kind of carving me out and, and you know, pushing me uh, on a slab of ice. Wow. It's just like what in the, what a wild and insane way, you know, to get pinned down. And then the, the, there were a couple of other things about it that really struck me. One is um, you didn't make any money on, on backdating. Like it, it wasn't as though it went into your pocket. Yeah. Well, let, let's, let's yeah. flush it out in its technicolor. Yeah. So yeah. I, I had been very, very successful economically by being at Brocade prior to going public. And in yep. the process that sent me to prison was one where we were trying to come up with a fair way of granting stock options to our employees. Um, I was never accused of backdating my own stock options. I was never accused of making a penny from my conduct. Uh, and I think that the kind of the, the crazy making of it all was that it didn't even involve cash. It was, it was hypothetical non-cash that had to do with the grant date and the share price. Uh, and at the end of the day, the, the stock options that were involved, the majority of them were never even exercised by employees. It was, it was much ado about nothing. And, and as I understand it, that the accounting rule, uh, which you were found to have violated, is no longer a rule. Well, the, the accounting rule that I was criminally prosecuted for was called APB, I think it was APB 27. I'd never yeah. heard of it before, but it was a ruling about uh, the measurement date and the grant date associated with granting employee stock options and the amount of a non-cash charge that should be reported. Uh, and in fact, when I was prosecuted, that particular accounting pronouncement was null and void. It wasn't in effect. It wasn't uh, being used anymore. Um, so it was kind of like, like if you can imagine going back in time and yeah. criminally prosecuting somebody <laughs> for a now defunct law, um, yeah. it, it just it made my head want to explode. Wow. Wow. And so now... <laughs> 
um, now at this point, the walls start closing in because you, you've resigned. And so now the, you lose kind of the company pr protections, you know, what, whatever they were doing. Um, and so kind of what happened next with the prosecutors and then, then how was that affecting your personal life? Because you had an amazing family, you were, you know, you made a billion dollars, you own like the sharks. I mean, like you were like such a big figure in Silicon Valley, you know, what happened through that prosecution process? Well, you know, I, I was one of these guys that um, in many ways uh, and probably wrongfully so I viewed, you know, my team and, and many of my employees as almost like an extended family. I mean, I spent mm -hmm. more time working with them than I did with my own family. Uh, yeah. just because of, of travel requirements and the demands of the job. So the minute that uh, I was asked to resign, I was basically ostracized and uh, people just went dark on me. So that was very disorienting. Um, you, you, you kind of lose your, your you know, sense of equilibrium when, you know, one day a, a switch is flipped and the atmospherics have changed. So it was, it was disorienting personally. It was a horrible ordeal for my, my family. I had two young children at the time. Um, and, you know, once I was criminally indicted, uh, you know, then all the oxygen came out of the room. And, yeah. and the, the pressure was almost unbearable because, you know, now you're in a fight for your life. And one of the ways that I described it is, you know, if you think things are bad, they can always get a lot worse. Like, like <laughs> yeah. I thought, oh my God, I mean, I could never imagine being fired. I've never been fired. Well, you know, then that happens. Uh, and then, you know, my God, I mean, I can't, this is so ridiculous. I can't imagine, you know, the SEC pursuing this. This is absurd. And then I get a Wells notice. And then, yeah. you know, oh my God, I mean, I, I can't imagine not being a public company CEO again. And then, you know, I'm criminally indicted. And then it's like, oh my God, I'm going to trial. And, you know, these charges amount to, you know, 20 plus years per count. And, wow. you know, th this, this could be, you know, the end of my life as I knew it. Um, so yeah, it was, it was debilitating. Man, yeah, that is. And so, you know, under that, you're walking into this trial and then there were some like real surprises about what people were saying on the stand in the first trial that turned out to not even be true, that they admitted weren't true. And what was well, that the, like? The, well, let, let, me, let me start at the beginning of the process. For yeah. people who don't know how a criminal trial uh, unfolds, it starts with something called the voir dire process, where you, um, show up before the trial is supposed to start and the courtroom is packed with prospective jurors and they fill out a questionnaire, a voir dire questionnaire to vet them. And there's like a draft pick where, you know, we can knock out, and I, I'm, I'm just going from memory, so I'm probably wrong. We can knock out uh, 10 uh, jurors that we think are biased and, you know, the prosecution can knock out 10. Well, <clears throat> we, we, we get into the list and I'm reading 
what these people are writing. And I'm reading things like, uh, you know, this guy's a CEO. I don't even need to know the facts. Uh, I think all CEOs should go to prison for the rest of their lives. And I'm thinking, <laughs> holy cow, th- this, yeah. this is not like it's Uh-oh. supposed to be. This is not like television. And, you know, yeah. my, my attorney would say, you know, Your Honor, we think, you know, Mr. Smith should be disqualified for bias. And the, the judge would say, uh, Mr. Smith, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, if I asked you to be fair and impartial for Mr. Reyes, even though it says here that you think he's guilty, <laughs> would you do that for me? Uh, yes, Your Honor. Okay, you can stay in the jury. Mm-hmm. So th- th- that was kind of the base level yeah. atmospheric, right? And it's like, okay, I can kind of get a sense as to how this is going to go. Well, in the first trial, the entire premise of the prosecution was that I had somehow deceived Mike Bird about how stock options were granted to employees and that that caused brocade to improperly account for hypothetical non-cash expenses under APB 25. Now, the long and the short of it is that was a lie. They, they knew it was a lie. Um, well, and and you, they, you had actually been guilty of the opposite, right? Of over-delegating, not, not, not kind of running your own program behind the CFO's back, but actually giving the whole thing to the CFO. Oh, 100%, 100%. And if he'd said, hey, Greg, this is how we should account for it, I would say, okay, I mean, if if that's how we should account for it, you know, let's account for it that way. Um, So the other kind of crazy making is there were all of these employees, some of which I'd never met before, you know, some were laid off in reductions in force, uh, others had gotten passed over for promotions that that the feds had found, and and none of them had really interacted with me. But they they kind of painted this company that I love that was built on meritocracy, and uh, you know we did all kinds of EQ 360 uh, questionnaires to make sure that all of our executives were tuned in at all levels. You know, like the, this one woman, you know, she said. The prosecution uh, prosecution witness saying, uh, you know, what did you hear Mr. Reyes say? And she said, I heard him say, it's not illegal if you don't get caught. (laughs) Now, this had never been in any of her prior interviews with the FBI. I mean, she clearly made it up. I mean, maybe if if I did say that, I probably said it in the context of a Raiders game where there was a bad call. And somebody yeah. didn't get, you know, but, but it was, it was that kind of crazy making. Yeah. That is, that is just unbelievable. And so then, then how did the, you know, you went through the trial and then you had an appeal and you won the appeal. Well, yeah, I, I did. Um, and I'm going to just rewind a little bit. <clears throat> What's ironic about it is the day after I was found guilty, the yeah. SEC then came out and charged Mike Bird with securities fraud mm-hmm. after the, the feds had argued that I had somehow deceived yeah. him. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, we went in then to the judge saying, hey, you need to throw out the verdict because this is this is just bogus. Of course, he wouldn't do that because uh, he was he was so um, uh, having my scalp on his lodgepole. Um, but in any event, uh, people started to come forward. We had a, a witness that the, the prosecutor had 
basically composed testimony out of and and she lied and she came forward even under threat of perjury and and admitted that she had lied uh, and we went back to the same judge he still wouldn't throw out the verdict um and then make a long story short you know a year plus later another million dollars in legal fees i won on appeal uh and i had a brilliant appellate attorney named seth waxman who did uh, a phenomenal job of uh, of arguing that case and i thought it was over yeah yeah, like, I mean, I've never heard of anybody being tried twice for the same crime. Oh, it happened. <clears throat> it happens yeah. all the time. It happens yeah. all the time. Um, uh, so the in, instead of finding for me and throwing the case out, the uh, Ninth Circuit Appellate Court threw the case out and, and left it uh, to the U.S. attorney's discretion as to whether or not they retried me, which they did. Yeah. And then on the second time, they 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 convicted you. They, they did, except this time yeah. it was it was a truly brilliant, indefensible prosecution. Yeah. Uh, and the the prosecution was it was very tight. It was very discreet. It was very simple. And it went something like this, that. Uh, we, the U.S. government, hired uh, someone from an accounting firm to go through all of Greg Reyes's personal stock option grants that I received, which, by the way, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't grant to myself. Yeah. And because there was no way to determine the grant date <clears throat> of those options to Mr. Reyes, it would have resulted in a $300 million hypothetical non-cash expense, even though Mr. Reyes never exercised any of those options. So they, they implied that I had received backdated stock options uh, from my board of directors, but the members of my board from the compensation committee wouldn't come and testify on my behalf because they were under threat of criminal prosecution. And then they, oh. I don't know if you, I don't this is still around, but there was this this group called ISS. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. they're they still around. You know, they they're still around, and they, they would like create make work to you know determine you know your compliance level. And they rolled out this ISS lady who said that I'd been so grossly overcompensated, and you know based on the performance of the company, I was you know massively overpaid. And and then they found a guy who was a, uh, an ex-New York fireman. They had to advertise in the Wall Street Journal to find yeah. any witnesses, but they found a guy who was a, uh, uh, an FNDY fireman who owned some brocade shares, started selling like 10 shares before the restatement and sold another 10 after who came out as fire fireman costume and you know, said that, that you know, it would have mattered, hypothetical non-cash expenses would have mattered to him because, you know, it... it was an important fact, you know, even though we'd never read a financial statement, it didn't even know what they, they were. So it, they just, they dirtied me. They, they, they like soiled my reputation uh, by making it look like I was some greedy, self-dealing, unfair uh, CEO who, you know, damaged firemen. Right. Right. Even though your compensation wasn't determined by you, it was determined by the board of directors who didn't show up. <laughs> yeah. hundred so percent. Yeah, 100%. That, that's uh, that, that's really something. Um, 
Before we get into, let me just pause for a second and see, Mark, do you have, uh, we've been talking a lot. I want to make sure I let you get in before we get into jail and all these things. <clears throat> no, I think we have, we have good momentum. This has been great. By the way, Greg, we're getting a ton of positive feedback on this, you know, from, from, from all the people listening. So let's, let's, uh, let's keep going. Okay. okay. All right. All right. So, okay. So they pin, they, they get you. Um, and now you've got a, you know, you're going from being CEO of brocade to whatever number you were going into prison. Yeah. Um, man, it was a, it was a long fall. Um, right. So this started yeah. in 2005. Now we're at 2010, uh, $15 million fine. Uh, even though I accuse him of not making a penny for my supposed yeah. crimes, no shareholder loss of penny. I'm at like 50 million in legal fees. Um, I'm, I'm getting divorced, going through a divorce. Uh, um, you know, I'm kind of at like rock bottom, um, and uh, I'm going to Taft Correctional Institution in Taft, California, um, and that's where I serve my term. Wow! And great. Actually, I do. I do have a question. Um, how did you? Or what did you do to prepare? Oh, um, so that's actually a great question. Um, so I. I thought about, you know, what it was going to to be like, and I, I thought about, you know, how I could prepare myself. So I, I knew that I needed to have uh, a power of attorney for my accountant to sign on my behalf and to pay my bills and to uh, sign my taxes for me. Uh, I gave my mom a book list and asked her to to send me a book a week. I uh, came up with a, a list of friends um, and, you know, asked them if they would you know, come and visit me. Uh, and I, I had somebody who would put money on my books so I would be able to, to eat and, and, you know, buy shoes. And, you know, you get free stuff when you go to prison, but it's not stuff you'd want to eat or wear or, or drinks. So I, I, I did as much research as I could to prepare myself you know, for the inevitable. And then, but when you got there, um, the day you arrived, they put you in solitary. Yeah, they they call it the hole. So yes. I, I show up, right? And I'm, I'm, a friend of mine drove me down there and I'm crying and, you know, it's just like, oh my God, I mean, this, I can't believe this is happening to me. Uh, and, and, you know, I get there and they're like, Oh, uh, who are you? I said, I'm, I'm Greg Reyes. And they stuck me in a cell and they said, uh, Hey man, your paperwork didn't show up. So you're going to have to be in solitary confinement until it does. And I'm like, um, like, are you kidding me? So <clears throat> they're like, no. So they took me to the hole, which is, which is this solitary confinement. And it's like something out of a, a horror movie where like human beings are like kept in these, tiny little windowless cells and you're like hearing people screaming and crying and pounding on the walls and i'm thinking this this is not for me this is not a good story. yeah yeah that is and how how long were you did they leave you in solitary before they found your paperwork 
I think it was like 24 hours or 48 hours. Um, and then, then they released me into the general population. Yeah. And then, and what was that time like? Because, you know, you, you wrote a book while you were in uh, prison. You, you did a lot of things. You, you definitely <laughs> used your time. Well, as I mentioned earlier, my view of how to be successful at anything is you need to have a vision. You need to mm -hmm. decompose it into a plan that if you execute the plan, you will achieve your desired outcome and you need to hold yourself accountable. Um, so, you know, I, I knew that I needed to find my way and, oh. and um, I didn't know how. I was going to do that, uh, and I was scared to death. But within an hour of walking in to my cell block, this guy comes up to me. He goes, "Hey, are you Greg Reyes?" I said, "Yeah, I am. Who are you?" He goes, "I'm Michael Santos. I've been waiting for you." I'm like, "Michael Santos?" <laughs> He's like, "Hey, yeah. this is going to be great." <laughs> like, "Oh, it's mm -hmm. going to be great." It's like, no, "This <laughs> is going to be great." You know, you're going to make the best of this. You know, I'm here to help you get through this. And and you know, he was he was like my mentor there and. You know, I dropped like a hundred oh, wow. pounds and I ran a couple marathons and I wrote a book and I, I read 70 books and, you know, played chess at night to keep my brain fresh. And, you know, I, I, I really came out of there strong and, and, you know, that's what Michael advocated for in prison. And, and, you know, that's what he's advocated for since he got out. And an amazing guy, you know, that, that basically, you know, got multiple degrees in prison and wrote best-selling books and yeah. and set incredible goals for himself. Um, and who was Michael Santos? Like, what was he in for? Um, <clears throat> Michael is is an interesting case. And the way he'll tell the story is that he's a Cuban guy. I'm half Cuban. Uh, he grew up in either Seattle or Washington. I can't remember. But uh, his dad had a construction company. And it was right about the time that Scarface was a popular movie and you know he'd yeah. go to the clubs and you know, he'd see these guys with these really good looking women and he said to his buddies like like how, how does that guy end up with this girl he's like oh he's a yeah. drug dealer he's like drug dealer what, what's that and he said yeah. like, you buy a kilo of cocaine for five grand you sell it for 15 and you give it to the chicks and and they think you're really amazing he's like shit i can do that so he basically ended up yeah. using his dad's line of credit and he and he ended up getting like 50 years to life back when uh, the federal system, in fact, had parole. So he was yeah. kind of the, the Scarface poster boy. Uh, and, you know, Michael managed to turn himself into an amazing human being through that process. Yeah, no, that, 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 that is remarkable. Um, and uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting because you, you know, you had... Uh, or made a lot of relationships in prison um, that, uh, you know, is interesting. I remember in reading the book, which isn't out yet, by the way, but uh, Greg's, Greg's working on that, uh, that, you know, some of those guys uh, ended up being like a lot easier to deal with than, um, you know, your employees who you worked with on the outside at the end. Well, <clears throat> I mean, look, I, I, I think that, um, without naming names beyond bird. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I think that the best way that I can describe it, that given a constant state of atmospherics, 
you can develop a high degree of confidence on as it relates to how somebody's going to behave, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, how they're going to react uh, in certain situations. Uh, what I came to learn through this process is that uh, you know once the feds show up and they they start you know implying that they're going to drag somebody, some white collar guy, you know, out of his house and send him to prison, uh, they they their character gets revealed very quickly. <laughs> yes. um, and, you know, there, there were, I mean, look, in, in the prison population, there are a lot of people that are there for good reason. Um, mm-hmm. And there are some that, that are there because of the circumstances of their lives, which is very sad. Uh, and there are a handful of guys that, that shouldn't be there at all. Um, yeah. But the one thing that I found in the prison environment is it's, you know, it's pretty raw. You know, pe- people... People kind of are what they are. You know, there, there's not this this eminence front, if you will. I don't know if you guys remember the eminence front song that the Who uh, came out with in the in the 80s. You know, yeah. eminence front. It's a put on. Um, you know, there, there's there's a lot of that going on back in my day, and I'm sure there's a lot of it going on now. But in prison, people, you know, everybody's got their rap and their hustle, but but it, people are pretty real. They're they're not trying to pretend that they're somebody that they're not. Right, right, right. Did I did, did I answer your question? Yeah, no, that 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 that, that, that was super um, su- super helpful. And when you get so kind of coming out of you know coming out of prison, you then your your old life is gone. Um, so what then? That that was actually the the hardest part. Um, you know, I I I drifted. I mean, you know, I, I kind of went from a guy who was busy from seven in the morning until nine o'clock at night, uh, six sometimes seven days a week. Uh, people lined up outside my office. You know, I I was I was kind of a full contact CEO, and I went from uh, that to the phone's not ringing and, and living your life in Silicon Valley and people kind of shooting you looks like, Hey, is that that guy? Um, and, and it was, it was hard. It was, it was disorienting. It was horrible. And I, I had to, you know, re reinvent myself. Hey, great. Yes. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't mind, I, there's actually a step um, that I think that we skipped that I think is important for understanding the system. If you're willing to, to discuss it, which would be the the halfway house. <laughs> no. Is that okay? No, I remember your Facebook posts from the time, so that that's why that's why I'm suggesting it. So, so the halfway house was was almost worse than the prison. So, there's kind of a. <clears throat> A process that isn't well understood where, you know, at, at the end of your sentence, and I can't remember the calculation, you, you're, you're entitled to get some amount of time in a, in a halfway house, which is supposed to assist you in transitioning back into society. Uh, and the halfway house that I went to was in the, the Tenderloin, uh, which is a rough part of San Francisco, and uh, show up and uh, you're basically now a prisoner in an apartment building. 
and and you have to perform tasks like you have to show that you can go out and set up a bank account you have to go and find a job and you have to pay the halfway house some percentage of the money you get for your job uh and as you're doing that you're you know stepping over human feces and people who've like OD'd on the side of the street and and it's probably like the worst environment that any human being could be thrust into that's trying to re-enter society so i i did that i did that for uh two months and and i was again through michael santos uh he helped introduce me to uh a fellow that uh, he'd met in prison who owned a big lumber company who I think that a year or two, because of some tax-related issue, another another bad CFO uh, that caused that um, parade of horribles to happen to him. But he gave me a job. I was like working in the accounting department of a lumber company in South San Francisco. But you know, but but for him and and Michael, you know, I I wouldn't have gotten through the process. And by the way, the the process is structured ever escape. Like the process is structured so that if you do anything after you're convicted before you go to prison, something bad happens to you. Or if you're in the halfway house and you know you don't show up on time, or they show up to your workplace and you know they can't find you, or you know you can't get a job, then you go back to prison. And then you know after you're out of the halfway house, you're on parole, and you know if anything happens to you, you end up back in prison. So. The answer is end up back in prison, almost irrespective of of you know where you are in that that sausage making process. Yeah, that is a uh, that is crazy. And but but then there was also once you get out of the halfway house, you're kind of restricted. I mean, one of the things I remember back you know when uh, you know when you got out and we were talking was. Um, you know, you couldn't go like you, you had a felony. You can't go on public boards. You can't, um, there are so many things that you, that are just restricted. Um, tell oh, us ben, about that. Ben, yeah. it's, ben, it's, 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 <clears throat> it's horrible. The, the, the felon stigma is horrible. And, and I want to make it clear. <clears throat> and this is uh, uh, something that one of my best friends told me, Mark Cahotis, at a moment when I was feeling down, and Mark's a, a very well-known, famous investor and short seller, and, and he said that it's not what they call you, it's what you answer to. So, so like, I, I thought, man, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm out, and this is over. But, but the, the stigma yeah. is pervasive, right? So you company CEO was the, the worst of my problems. <clears throat> Bank of America fired me. I, I had like for 20 years done business with Bank of America. And I get a letter one day saying, I've got 30 days to clear out my accounts. And I could not find another bank to bank with me because I was a felon. Wow. And, and, and the parade of horribles continues that like once you're a felon, uh, you know, if somebody wants to, to ruin your life, you know, put a spent shell casing under your seat. And then call the cops and say, oh, so-and-so is a felon. They've got a, a spent shell casing or a round of ammunition. It's mandatory five to 10 years. So, so you live in constant yeah. fear. Wow. You, you live in, in, in constant fear. So you get out of prison. 
and this isn't just Greg Reyes. I think this is just the people in general who, who come out of the back end of the sausage making process. You're completely traumatized. You're, you've got a stigma. You have virtually no opportunity to livelihood. And then um, if somebody is smart, they can send you back for another five to 10 years. Stick a bullet in your car. If you and I happen to be driving yeah. and you happen to have a, a legal firearm in your possession and we get pulled over and the cops find that out, I go back to prison for constructive possession as a felon, even when I'm not on parole. That, by the way, is why yeah. I sued the federal government to get my Second Amendment rights back. And I won uh, well before wow. the pardon. But it's just crazy what they do to people. It's horrible. Wow. Wow. And then and this is I mean, the thing that's so stunning is it's after you've served your time. <clears throat> I mean, it's not, yes. it's not, it's not as if that you didn't go to prison. You served your time and then you're, you're stamped with that scarlet letter and always on the edge. Terrible. Oh, it's, 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 the, yeah. it, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving guys. I mean, the only thing that saved me quite frankly was, was meeting my second wife. I was drifting, lost, very unhappy. And then I, I met my wife and, and, you know, got my equilibrium back and, and found a purpose and, you know, been happily married now six years as of uh, uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And and if it wasn't for my wife, I, I don't know where I would be, quite frankly. I'd probably be, you know, living in a bottle or, or, or you know, continuing to fight the demons. I mean, she would tell me up until just <clears throat> about three years ago that almost every night, a couple nights a week, I would wake up screaming in my sleep because I had this reoccurring nightmare of feds kicking down my door and guys with like black Kevlar helmets dragging me out of my bed. I mean, this is real stuff. Man, Rick, how, how, how did you meet your wife? Um, so I, um, when I got out, I um, lived in Santa Cruz and that kind of kept me out of Silicon Valley. And I, you know, thought I'd be close enough to see my kids regularly, even though that never materialized. Um, and I, I, I was in my house and I was just really, like, I, I didn't want to socialize with anybody. And a friend of mine said, hey, let's go to this beach barbecue at the Crow's Nest. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to go, man. Well, he came and got me, um, as good friends do. And we went to this thing and I had a couple beers and a hamburger and met my wife and, and, you know, the rest is history. It was just a, you know, was it the hand of God? What was it a chance encounter? Um, you know, maybe it was both, but, but it was, it was a true blessing for me. And now we've got a, you know, a two-year-old baby daughter and, you know, life has never been better for Greg Reyes. So my, my, my wife would kill me if, if I don't ask this question. So I, I have to, which is like, so how, so like, how did you, like, what did you tell her like that first, that first night when you're talking to her? <clears throat> Oh, this is, it's funny, Mark. So the, the answer is, I wouldn't give her my full name. I just told her I was Greg. And we, we actually went out on a couple of dates. And she said, this is really getting weird. You're creeping me out. And um, I just, you know, I, I just want you to get to know me for me. And, and I got a call at like 4am. And she said, I figured out who you are. Like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And I was like, because I was afraid, you know, I, I, I have this stigma. And yeah. You know, still today, if you Google Greg Reyes, this is like top 10 business criminals of all time. I mean, it's like, <laughs> really? It's crazy. That's, that's so crazy. <laughs> I mean, because there are some real actual business criminals out there. So it is uh, that, that that is just bananas. Um, so.
talk about the uh, the process um, to getting pardoned because I know I know you had been working on that. It has to be at least seven or eight years. Well, <clears throat> so it's 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 actually one of my my proudest and and most rewarding achievements to have received a pardon from President Trump. And the reason it is, is because I believe that it was 100% based on merit. And I'll, and I'll tell you the story. After <clears throat> my first conviction, um, I had attempted to get a, a pardon before my appeal. Uh, and this was before I won my appeal. And this was with President Bush. Um, and it was unsuccessful. And if you go back and do the, the work, he basically didn't pardon anybody. Um, and then I didn't even try during the Obama era um, because I, I just, you know, I'm not connected with the Democratic Party and yeah, I just, I didn't know anybody. Um, and uh, <clears throat> then President Trump gets elected and my wife said, Greg, I, I really think you can get a pardon. I, I think he's a businessman. I think he would understand what happened to you. And I said, you know what? I, I don't know. I, it just... I wanted to just put it behind me and get on with my life. And, you know, I spent a lot of money trying to get a pardon before, like $600,000 and had nothing to show for it. And, and it was just too painful. <clears throat> well, she was encouraging me and I just started calling around and, and saying, Hey, you know, do you know, president Trump? And, you know, got a lot of hangups in Silicon Valley and, and um, <clears throat> about two years ago, a very good friend of mine, one of my best friends, who is uh, uh, vice president of a technology company, said, you know, my, my friend is really good friends with the president, and, and let's see if we can't get him signed up to advocate for you. Um, so we, we had a conference call, and I told him my story, and I sent him my information, and, and he, he <clears throat> didn't hear from him for a month or two, and he called me back, and I'm saying, hey, he called me back and said, hey, Greg, I'm playing golf with the president and I'm, I'm going to tell him about you. Uh, oh, wow. so my, so my wife and I, you know, we're now granted, this is like two years ago, but we're waiting around, you know, how did it go? What happened? And he calls me, says, you're not going to believe it. I, I was partnered with the president and I played 18 holes with him. I told him your whole story and you know, he, he thought it sounded horrible and he said that he would have somebody look into it complete radio silence yeah. for a year and a half. And, and I'm thinking, Oh my gosh, there's no chance at this. I'm, I'm not even going to try <clears throat> anymore. And then I'm talking to my friend, Michael Santos and he goes, Greg, you need to try to get a pardon. And I'm like, I, I don't even know where to begin. Michael, he said, you need to contact my friend, Sean Hopwood. Sean Hopwood is a great guy. You know, he might be able to help you, but hmm. at the end of the day, Greg, you know, I, I, I think it'd be crazy not to call Sean. So he introduces me to Sean Hopwood. Turns out <clears throat> Sean Hopwood is one of the most amazing men that I've ever met. He was a bank robber. He <laughs> robbed wow. five, five banks, um, went to prison. He was, I guess you would call him a jailhouse lawyer who won Supreme Court cases out in prison uh, from prison in pr in prison wow he got out got his law degree and he's now a professor at uh at georgetown and <laughs> oh my god <laughs> and and 
has done a, a, just amazing things. Um, and it also turns out he was one of the authors and very actively involved in getting President Trump's First Step Act yeah. uh, approved, which is, I think, probably the only bipartisan piece of legislation that uh, came out of uh, the Trump presidency. So yeah. I call Sean. I tell him my story. He's like, well, you know, I don't know, man. I, I you know, I, I, I got to get to know you. Um, and I said, OK, where do I meet you? And he said, well, I'm going to be in, in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, two weekends <laughs> from now. <laughs> That's so, a good test. <laughs> you willing to go to so, Cleveland? So I drag my wife and our infant to Cleveland, Ohio, and I meet with Sean. Yeah. And and we met for like four hours. We'll make a long story short. The person who argued, I said to Sean, I said, Sean, how did you win these Supreme Court cases in prison? He goes, oh, well, I found somebody to advocate for me. Uh, and his name is Seth Waxman. I said, Seth Waxman, my appellate attorney was Seth Waxman. So we had common ground. And um, I, I kind of went into, you know, Gregory sales mode. And I thought, I'm, I'm really going to advocate hard with Sean. And, you know, I told him my story and I, I, I mean, literally we spent four hours talking about me and talking about him and his family. And, <clears throat> and then Sean called me and said, okay, I, I'll work yeah. with you. And I, I really think that you've got a shot. Um, so time is progressing and, uh, Sean, are you, are you hearing anything? It's like, no, you know, they're, they're, they keep saying that they're going to do um, uh, pardon reform. You know, we just need to be patient for the right time. Well, then there was a series of events, right? You had the the whole impeachment thing, and you had, yes. you know, the end of the Mueller the Mueller thing, and and so it was kind of careening from one crisis to another. We get to the December timeframe, and and Sean says, "Look, Greg, I I think that um, we need to bring somebody else on the team. We need to bring Brett Tolman. Mm -hmm. Well, Brett is an ex uh, federal prosecutor." very involved in prison reform. He's, he's uh, on Fox News a lot and CNN a lot and uh, introduced me to Brett. And, and Brett said, I think there's a lot of merit to what happened to you. It's just, I can't believe you got prosecuted. Uh, and Brett sought to get other federal prosecutors to uh, sign on to a, a letter uh, recommending that I receive a pardon. And, and the more I interacted with Brett and Sean, the more passionate that mm -hmm. they uh, got about me and my situation. Um, and, you know, we're, we're getting, you know, close to uh, the transition to the, the Biden presidency. And <clears throat> about a week before the, the craziness in Washington, I thought, you know, I, I really need to go into sales mode. So I yeah. called the individual that had played golf with President Trump, asked him to advocate again. Um, I'm watching Maria Bartiromo on Fox, and I thought, oh, I know Maria. And she talks to the president all the time. So I, I got her email address. I emailed her. She called me right back. We spent like an hour on the phone. She said, you know, next time I talk to the president, I'll absolutely, uh, you know, tell him that I think what happened to you was horrific and, and, and you know, never should have happened. And I was, I was like staggered that somebody I hadn't spoken to in 20 years was willing to help. Um, uh, I called a guy named David Horowitz, who happens to be the dad of a friend of mine <laughs> who has some connections uh, and said, you know, Mr. Horowitz, you know, would you please call anybody that you know? So I, I just started calling everybody that I knew that might know somebody that could 
say something about Greg Reyes on my behalf. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, we're then we had the the situation in the Capitol and the riots or insurrection or whatever you choose to call it. And yeah. Sean calls me and he says, Greg, I, I don't see how this is going to happen at all for you. Um, I don't see it happening for anybody, yeah. uh, quite yeah. frankly. And so, so then I'm like, oh, my God. Uh, and <clears throat> make a long story short, I don't know exactly the dynamics of how it happened. Um, but I, I believe that, that Brett and Sean uh, continue to advocate for me and figured out what the process was as ad hoc as it may have been. Uh, and the only feedback that I got was that the people that they talked to thought that I was very deserving and should never have been criminally prosecuted. So for me, yeah. like it, it doesn't really change anything, uh, but it also changes everything. I mean, I, I can say with 100% confidence that I know that I got a presidential pardon because the people that vetted uh, the petitioners thought that I got a, a, a raw deal. Um, and that means something. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, no, it, it finally lets you close the chapter. I mean, the, the, it's so remarkable in just, you know, talking just your whole uh, demeanor and spirit now compared to the last time we did a talk like this. It's just such a transformation. And I can tell it's, you know, you finally were able to walk away from that. The demons are back in the bottle, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it is great to see. Um, so we have some great questions um, from uh, the audience and from Twitter, but I <clears throat> realize that we've got uh, somebody here who asked one of those great questions. So if you don't mind, Greg, I was going to bring him up to speak. He's a friend of mine uh, who served. 19 years in prison and seven in solitary confinement. Um, I've talked to you about him before. His name is Shaka. And if you don't mind, I'll bring him up. Oh, you read, read his book. His, I read his book. I'd, I'd love yeah. to meet him. Oh, perfect. Okay, here he is. Shaka, what's up? Hey, what's going on, Ben? This conversation has been amazing. Um, and Greg, I'm happy the, the demons are back in the bottle. It's just so refreshing to hear your perspective and your experience and just all the things you've learned through the process that you're sharing. Um, so super just honored to get a chance to meet with you and talk. Uh, the one question I had was, you know, why, why do you, in your opinion, do you think a pardon is important at this stage of just your life, your transition back and how can governments, you know, whether it's local governments or national, um, use these more effectively to help people transition back home? Oh, Shaka, I think it's a great question. I, I guess <clears throat> the, the thing that I learned from my vantage point is that there really is no process. That, that today, and it's been this way for, for decades, the pardon attorney lives in the Justice Department. And, and why would anybody think that that office has any incentive to grant clemency, uh, a pardon, uh, or reduce a sentence as unjust as it may be, living in the entity that sent that individual to prison. So the, the first thing is, I think the system is incredibly broken. And, and because it's broken, you tend to get this, this flurry 
at the end of a president's term where, where people are doing everything that they know how to do to try to get clemency. And I think the tragedy in this is that there are thousands and thousands of people that are <clears throat> serving time in prison because of ridiculous sentencing guidelines for things that today are wouldn't even be considered a crime to uh, victims of criminal prosecution for things that should never have been uh, prosecuted criminally. So, you know, for me personally, I, I wanted to win. I, I, I wanted to prevail in an unjust system and what I believe to be an unjust prosecution. And I think there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of deserving people who've transformed their lives from you to, to Sean Hopwood, to Michael Santos, to, to people that are, are, are basically buried alive, you know, doing 20 year plus sentences as young men because of, of these, these ridiculous uh, sentencing guidelines. So I, I you know, I, I would love to see somebody have the courage to step up and, and come up with a process that isn't dominated by politics and just do the right thing for human beings. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for reading the book. Uh, I'm really excited. I'm actually going to put in for my pardon uh, finally this year and uh, hope everything goes well. So appreciate you being out here uh, beating the drum for justice. No, I, I wish you the best, Shock, and I look forward to meeting you. I, I, I think you're an example of somebody who has done wonderful things with a, a difficult day. Thank you, Adele. Thank you. Yeah, we're going to make that happen for sure. As soon as uh, we just got to let uh, a few more of these uh, vaccines get out there and, and we're definitely going to put that together. Um, Mark, what do you got? Well, so I have a great closing question. Should I ask it now or should I wait till the uh, wait till the end? <laughs> uh, well, if it's great, then ask it now and we can we can get into <laughs> it. Yeah. So so, Greg, so. Um, so if this were a movie, um, you know, the final scene would be, you know, probably you with your lovely wife and your kid, or maybe in the future, you know, grandkids, um, and, uh, you know, on the porch looking out at the sunset, and there'd be some voiceover, uh, you know, to the effect of, of redemption, and then, you know, sort of all the lessons you learned along the way, and how you, you know, had learned to, like, you know, let it go, um, and, you know, not look back in anger, and, I, and you always wonder when you watch those movie scenes, it's like, okay, is that really how I would be? Because it doesn't feel like how I would be, it feels like I would still be, like, really upset. And so I, I'm just like really curious, like when, when, when you look back, like how, how do you feel? Uh, I, I feel a lot of things at different times, um, but I, I guess I, I feel very grateful um, for the people that are in my life and have helped me get through this, this amazing journey that I've been on. Um, I obviously thank God for my, my wife um, and I've learned a lot about myself. I mean, I, <clears throat> I mean, I, I'd like to think that when I reflect, I can say to the man looking back at me in the mirror, I'm a winner. Uh, th this didn't define me. Um, I always find a way to win and I always find a way to come out on top. Uh, and I didn't let it bury me. I didn't let it cripple me. I didn't let it ruin my life. Um, you know, in a very, in a very twisted kind of way, 
I could thank that judge and prosecutor for for this because I've got an amazing amazing wife and a beautiful child that I never would have had. Uh, I've got a whole new set of friends that um, are, are made of real metal uh, instead of just soft tissue. Yeah. And then maybe, maybe, yeah, I, can ask, yeah, maybe I can ask one, one more, which is um, uh, how many people uh, who you were, uh, who you met when you were in prison, how many uh, do you still talk to? Um, I would say maybe three or four, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, people's lives just go in different directions. You, you know how that goes. He sounds a little like you, Shaka, in terms of uh, perspective. <laughs> at the yeah. end, this is that was a really interesting summary, you know, of just understanding how life works and who you are. Yeah, you know, I appreciate it being in. Uh, I'm vaccinated, so we can meet soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's go. I look forward to it. Yeah, no, uh, definitely. We we will we will get that together. Um, Greg, so now what? So what are you, uh, you know, the, the, we work with so many kind of young CEOs who, um, <clears throat> you know, could use, greatly use kind of advice in, in your experience, you know, not, a, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, leading an organization, um, you know, having a vision, setting the goals, organizing the company around them. Um, and now you you also have a whole other layer, which is governance and how that works and, and uh, uh, you know, how to protect yourself. So what, what are your plans now? You know, you've, you are um, completely clean from a felony standpoint and everything. And uh, how are you thinking about the next 10 years? Well, that's a good question, Ben. I, I think that, um, you know, I want to help people. I want to help young uh, leaders. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be business executives. Um, and I, I think I've got a, a toolkit that, you know, can help people accelerate their path to success and, and uh, you know, avoid making mistakes that aren't necessarily obvious. I mean, now I've got a new repertoire in my toolkit, which has to do with compliance and governance. So, you know, I, I, I kind of have the scar scarlet letter uh, but I, I think I bring a lot of horsepower to any board, whether it's a public company board or a private board or, you know, even investment fund. Yeah. Okay, well, that scarlet letter is gone. <laughs> it got erased. It is. It is. What scarlet letter? Yeah, exactly. It's so, yeah, man, it, it's just so exciting to, to know that. Um, and uh, so let's, let's talk a little, you know, uh, kind of at the end here about like, um, you know, now that you're you've, you're viewing the world with fresh eyes and kind of business and and all these things that are that are going on, um, you know, what do you see? You know, what 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 do you see with businesses today? You know, what do you think is kind of better than in? Uh, well, I'll call it our era. You know, when we were CEO, um, and uh, you know, as opposed to now, and you know, what's maybe gotten worse. Well, that's a great question. I, I actually thought about that um, quite a bit before our call. And, um, you know, when, when we were operators, things were pretty discreet. It, it was it was pretty one dimensional. Right. It was about <clears throat> gaining customers, taking market share, building a profitable business, you know, org structure, pay for performance. Well, well now, you know, you've got 
this whole issue of environmental concerns, social concerns, governance mm-hmm. concerns, in in you know, at one level, ESG can be a buzzword. At another level, it can be incredibly impactful. And I, I think to be a successful CEO in today's age, you got to be pretty darn good at three-dimensional chest. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 not one-dimensional. It's not monochromatic. It's technicolor. It's moving fast. You know, the gremlins are are out there, and and you need to really have a discrete strategy that's multidimensional. And how do you? How do you kind of balance that with, you know, it's hard to build a company. It's hard to like get customers and make the product work and beat the competition and all these things. And how do you, you know, how, how do you think about like, how would you think about like making those things a priority or how you would deal with, uh, you know, workforce that might have their own ideas about the company mission that's different than, than your own vision? Well, I, I think it, at the end of the day, the job of a, of a great leader isn't to have his or her vision and do a cram down. It, it's crafting a vision that is inclusive of other opinions and shaping it and molding it and melding it so that you can spit out a strategy that's actionable and that people can be held accountable while at the same time, you know, having a lens for environmental issues, like not happy words, but, you know, mm-hmm. how can we make sure that we're leaving the planet better than we left it? The, the social issues, which are kind of front and center in, in our day and age mm-hmm. today, of, you know, being thoughtful and, and how to make sure that we're supporting, you know, those stakeholders. And then making sure from a governance standpoint, I mean, you know, I've talked about this privately, <clears throat> I think we're living in the golden age of fraud. I mean, we're seeing CEOs <laughs> do things w- without mentioning any names that like are incredible, like making <laughs> claims that that are clearly on their face fraudulent and promotional, uh, and trading yeah. and and you know taking a position and tweeting about it. And you know, at some point, that pendulum's going to snap back, and y- you don't want to be you know, on the wrong side of that snapback. Um, so you know, I. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's an opportunity, experience hands to add value uh, at all levels. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. It, it is really interesting. And one of the things that I worry about is, you know, you, you do see people, uh, I would just say, take liberties with the uh, SEC rules, you know, particularly on Twitter. And then, you, you know, I worry all the time about, okay, now you've got, uh, you know, a younger CEO coming up, looking at that, who may not have the celebrity or the protection to get away with the same thing and, and still does it and then, you know, finds themselves in jail. Uh, well, I, I, so it's, yeah. 100%. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's, that's a real issue. I mean, <clears throat> we're going to see a, I predict we're going to see a very harsh snapback. And if People don't get used to cutting, you know, 90 degree, you know, right and left hand turns. You're going to get broadsided and and there's yeah. no reason for it because you don't have to speed. You know, you can be successful going the speed limit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one of the other things on that, that, that I found very interesting, having kind of been, you know, a public company CEO is the market 
the governance uh, or the regulatory market is bifurcated in this very weird way where you've got multi-billion dollar private companies that, you know, they never, you know, they, they generally, you know, other than some really outrageous cases, um, are never kind of sued or sued by their investors or prosecuted or anything. And then you've got the public markets, which, you know, if you look at somebody wrong, you're getting sued by shareholders and, you know, and you'll get prosecuted very, very quickly. And I wonder, you know, I, because the laws aren't that different, it's just the enforcement is different. And it's, it's a very interesting societal thing in general, which is, um, and you've kind of alluded to it, where we have a set of laws, but they don't apply to everybody. Um, and th that's getting kind of true in corporate law. You know, it's always kind of, we've always kind of known about it on like things like drugs, like, you know, if <laughs> Michael Santos, you know, wasn't from Cuba and, and in the neighborhood he was, you know, he might not have gone to prison at all um, just because, you know, drug laws are applied to certain neighborhoods at certain times. Um, and then it seems that, you know, enforcement is applied in the public markets, but not in the private markets. And so it's just a very interesting, weird situation, I think, with, with law enforcement. Well, I mean, <clears throat> not to rattle the cage of the beast, but I mean, where's the SEC been? Where, where's the SEC been for the last four years? I mean, when when yeah. a CEO publicly says that the SEC stands for suck so-and-so, <laughs> you know what? I mean, and nothing happens? Like, yeah. what message does that send? It's like, it's like we can do whatever the hell we want, and, and so can everybody else. It's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah, you know, it is, it is definitely uneven. It's just... Uh, yeah, tr tr truly interesting. Um, well, and that's and that's yeah. why Ben, I think that the yeah. good hygiene, good good hygiene and you know best practices are important because it is asymmetrical, it is random, and if people aren't careful, you know they're they're going to be in a world of hurt, and it's it, they don't have to be. Yeah, that's a, you know that's such a good point because in securities laws, you know one thing that people I think most people don't realize is in the whole history of stock options up till the great stock option kind of accounting scandal, nobody was ever prosecuted for anything they did. Like there was never, like it, it was hard to imagine it being a crime because it was never a crime. Like if you, if you were a public CEO at the time, you'd be like, okay, well, how's revenue recognition? Cause I know people go to jail for that. Um, you know, what kind of fraud, are there. And if you looked at the entire set of cases, nobody had ever been prosecuted for that crime. And the thing that triggered it was literally like there was a paper, there was two things, the dot-com crash where people lost a lot of money. And then a paper, I think out of Princeton, just kind of noticing the pattern of when, you know, the price of stock options when they were issued. And that triggered the whole enforcement action. So it's pretty interesting there laws around accounting gets enforced when is very arbitrary. Oh, hundred percent. I can remember the, the article. Well, it was called the lucky CEOs. And I remember reading yeah. it thinking, holy cow, like I can't even imagine people doing that. <laughs> who gets currently prosecuted and didn't even grant himself his own stock options. It's crazy. 
Yeah, yeah, no, so, that's wild. So I, I think they're, my tale is a cautionary tale. And if you're a CEO listening or a board member, um, just be smart. It doesn't cost you anything to be smart. Yeah, and talk briefly about that. Like when you say be smart, um, you know, kind of what are what are a couple of the things that are really obvious to you in retrospect that that you didn't see nearly as clearly going through it the first time? Well, like we talked about the committee of one, we talked about having your your council on your board, but I I think you know having a compliance strategy and you know having quiet periods and holding people accountable for making sure that you know they're they're squeaky clean on RevRec and making sure that, you know, now we've got so much leakiness with social media, you know, enforcing policies and practices. So the company's not at risk, the shareholders aren't at risk, uh, and the CEO and the board aren't at risk. You know, just be smart. Yeah, you know, social media is such an interesting one. It's one, um, you know, we're at the firm, we're a registered investment advisor and RIA. So we, you know, kind of, uh, enforce a social media policy, but it's really interesting because we're a very rare, uh, definitely entity that does that. Um, it's generally a free for all out there and, and people don't realize that all that stuff can be very dangerous if it relates to the business in any way. You know, if you're going, oh, we had a great quarter, you know, one of your employees says that, that, you know, that can quickly end up being a crime. In a heartbeat, all it takes yeah. is some young prosecutor trying to make their bones and say, if I take that guy down, I can be in, you know, private practice uh, as a defense attorney in Skadden Arps making seven figures in three years. I mean, it, it's the real world. I mean, it, if you watch the show Billions, it's kind of how it works. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's a good show. Amazing dialogue. Brian compliment. <laughs> in, indeed. Indeed. I, I'm kind of yeah. I'm kind of new to it because I was. I had too much PTSD. I tried to watch it a couple times, and you know now I'm 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 okay. Yeah, that's no, good. That's good. All right. Well, let's get some. You know, we're up against the time. So, Shaka, Mark, do you have any uh, final questions? Sorry, coming. Um, hey, Greg, this has been really tremendous. Yeah, we're, we're an hour and a half, so don't, don't want to take up your entire night. Um, but this has been like just like incredibly tremendous. And we, like I said, we've just been getting like a steady, you know, a, a, a flood of positive feedback, you know, on the, on the back channels through the whole thing. So there are a ton of people in the audience, uh, you know, who have, I think, really appreciated, you know, you being willing to, to tell the full story and, and to be as, as raw and honest as you've been. Well, th thank you for having me. And thank you for believing in me and being my friend throughout this entire process. I, I truly appreciate it. And Shaka, it was great meeting you and I look forward to meeting you in person. All right, great. Well, thank you everybody uh, for coming. Um, and uh, thank you, Margaret and Felicia for helping us get the room started. And thank you, Shaka, um, for coming up and asking great question. And Welcome back, Greg. Um, it's so great to have you back with us, you know, out of the whole system and, and back in the game. So thank you so much. Glad to be back. Awesome. Okay. Good night, everybody. Good night.